0: And we pray all of these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you or some kind of device that has a Bible on it in front of you, I'll invite you to open up to John chapter 13. If you need a Bible, there are some at the back. You can grab one. And, and if you don't have a Bible, by all means, take that and it is our gift to you. We're now into the second half of this really pivotal chapter in the Gospel of John. Now, we're into what's called the Book of Glory, and really the second half of John's Gospel, from chapters 13 right through to the end of, of chapter 21, points us towards Jesus' glorification, how he is about to, uh, to, to get God's glory and show us God's glory, and, and it really lays it out for us how this is all going to happen. And so in our verses today, we're going to see three kind of main things. The first large section talks about Judas' betrayal of Jesus. And then at the very end of these verses, at the end of chapter 13, we see uh, the prediction of Peter's denial of Jesus. And then right in between the two, we get that new commandment that we just sang, to love one another. Now, so much of what we have read and looked at so far in John's Gospel, we're into, again, chapter 13, so we've been here for a while, so much of what we have looked at has pointed us to hope. And Jesus or John has written this to, to, to give us hope in what's to come, in Jesus. Now, help me out if you can. There's, there's a couple times today where I'm going to ask something of you. So I'm going to need to hear your voices. If you're online, head into the chat. Can you think of some examples, some of the, the stories that we've read, some of the things that we have studied that we have uh seen a seemingly hopeless situation and Jesus stepped into it and brought hope. Can you think of any? Maybe some miraculous <laughs> Lazarus, thank you, yeah. More Lazarus, sorry? Feeding the five thousand. The widow, yeah. Any others? Filling the nets, good one. I didn't have that one in my notes. The blind man, absolutely. No one has ever seen this happen before, but Jesus, yeah. What about the, the man by the pool who'd been there for 38 years, right? We watched, uh, we've been watching The Chosen at home a little bit. I don't know if you've, you've watched this, but boy, that was, that was an episode that uh, I really, I don't know how you say it. I enjoyed it. It doesn't sound like enough, but was moved by it. Now, why do we have these examples, and there's probably a couple more through, you know, 12, 13 chapters, why do we have these examples in front of us? Well, John really helpfully, right at the end of his book, reminds us that he wrote so that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah, John is, is purposefully writing so that we would know and see that Jesus is God in the flesh, come to walk this earth and rescue us from our sins and restore us to our relationship with the creator of the universe and to creation and to one another. And John wants us to, to come to the wonderful, life-changing, life-giving realization that Jesus Christ, a simple carpenter from Nazareth, is the promised Messiah. The son of the one true God. And all of these events that, yes, bring hope in the, in the moment, are recorded for us to, to look beyond just that moment. They're meant to point us to something else. They're recorded and they, they serve for us to connect the dots. See, on one hand, when we open the scriptures, we've got this whole host of Old Testament teaching about this long-expected, long-anticipated Messiah, the one that God would send Right from the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, we can trace this scarlet thread of the gospel all through the pages of the Old Testament. And now, as we're reading this gospel, and we have the three others, of course, too, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, we see Jesus, a man who, by all accounts, was basically an unknown carpenter, a manual laborer, living in an unremarkable town for nearly 30 years, And then he comes roaring into the public view, healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding all kinds of people, controlling the spectacle that was Jesus. This isn't promo material. Hey, come and see the amazing things this guy will do and don't worry about bringing lunch because he's got it covered. No, John has has carefully crafted this book to show that the, the signs and the wonders that Jesus is doing perfectly fulfill the promises that the Old Testament laid out about this is what the Messiah will do. This is who he will be. This is the kingdom he will bring. John wants us to connect the promise of the Messiah's power from the Old Testament to Jesus' power. And he wants us to see the works of Jesus as the fulfillment of all of those promises so long before. Now, I said that so far, much of what we've read in John's gospel has filled us with hope. Yet our verses today kind of take a turn. They might actually seem kind of depressing. Because we've got one of the disciples, Judas, sitting in a seat of honor at a meal, probably, probably right on Jesus' hand. We we can guess this because Jesus handed him bread. And because the discussion, it seemed like it wasn't always heard by everyone else, but Jesus said something to Judas and the other guys didn't understand. They, They didn't know why Judas left. He's sitting right there, and he's going to betray Jesus. And then a few verses later, Jesus tells Peter, uh, one of the closest disciples, if not the closest disciple, that, Peter, you're going to deny me three times in the next handful of hours. And yet, even these events, Judas' Judas's betrayal and Peter's denial, build John's case These moments are here because they, too, point to Jesus being the Messiah. Let me read for us, starting John 13. I'll start at verse 18, kind of backing up a little bit through to verse 30. Jesus says these words. I'm not speaking to all of you. He says he's talking to his disciples around the table. But I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you will believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, Truly, truly, I say one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. That We come to understand that's probably John, the author of this. And so Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus who he was speaking of. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. So he dipped the morsel and he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him, and Jesus said to him, to Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. And no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, go buy what we need for the feast or that he should go give something to the poor. So after he received the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. Now in a book that's been so filled with hope, it'd be really easy, I think, for us to look at this scene and just wonder, man, where did it all go wrong? Yet, as I mentioned, even though we're looking at such an intense betrayal being set up in these verses, these type of events are the exact thing, or this, this event is the exact thing that all the other signs have been doing. They're actually pointing to Jesus as Messiah. And we see this in two different ways. Uh, first, quickly, uh, Jesus is fulfilling messianic prophecy here again. In verse 18, when we read, Jesus is actually quoting from the Psalms. When David is lamenting that he is, his, his suffering and his mistreatment by his friends, those who were so close to him, the one that I've shared a meal with has, has turned against me. It had been come to know as a, a messianic text that, that this would characterize the Messiah. So much of, of David's life was a, a model, a, a pointing to of the, the true and better Messiah Jesus. And so Jesus quotes that. Again, to fulfill that prophecy. And second, again, we do see Jesus orchestrating the coming events here. None of this is taking Jesus by surprise. This isn't a sudden, unexpected betrayal in some small town away from everything. But this, what we're seeing happen here, is one little piece of a a cosmic battle that's been taking place for thousands of years. Look back at verse 1 of chapter 13 if you've got your Bible in front of you. And and remember how John opens this passage. Jesus knew that his hour had come. This is a, a, a massive theme again throughout John. Jesus talks about the hour often and my time hasn't come yet. The hour hadn't come so Jesus slipped away. The hour hadn't yet come but now the hour has come. Matt Carter beautifully summarizes all that's going on right here, and forgive a bit of a longer quote. But he says this, This battle has a long history. It goes back to the beginning of civilization. God had made a garden and placed a man and a woman in the middle, and they were created to live in peace and harmony. Their responsibility was to serve God and enjoy his fellowship and obey his word. And he had given them one command, Enjoy everything I've created for your benefit, But don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. And then the devil showed up disguised as a serpent and tricked the woman into eating from the tree and Adam, her husband, followed her example. Then soon God arrived and delivered a punishment for their disobedience. All the good things he had created would be cursed by sin. Instead of the ground serving man, man would serve the ground. Instead of marriage and children being a simple pleasure and perfect joy for the woman, these relationships would be plagued by sin. And they weren't the only ones cursed that day. The serpent was cursed as well. Earthly serpents were cursed above all animals, but the curse was extended to Satan in Genesis 3.15. And with that pronouncement, the great serpent's fate was sealed. And God promised a deliverer would come and liberate mankind from the oppressive rule of sin. And when that deliverance came, the devil would be defeated and his head would be crushed that promise that we can flip all the way back to genesis 3 15 and read was coming close to being fulfilled in this scene jesus knew what was happening here and he knew how it would happen he is in complete control maybe too look at verse 3 again at the beginning of chapter 13 and this one might be worth us memorizing especially when it seems like the world around us is spinning out of control because here's the point John is making, even in Judas's betrayal. Look at John 13, 3. Jesus knew the Father had given him authority over everything. And that he had come from God and would return to God. Help me out here. What was Jesus given authority over? Everything. Not a few things, not this thing and that thing, but Everything. The word here in the original languages is panta, and it means all or every or the whole. Jesus has the whole world in his hands. Sometimes I fear that we start to overthink and outgrow some of the really basic truths that we learn in Sunday school. Some of the kids' song, right? And and yes, of course, some of them need to be nuanced a little bit, and we, we have to go a little bit deeper in our understanding, but... He's got the whole world in his hands, right? That means when you can help me out here in a minute. When someone mistreats you and it seems like there's no justice, he's got the whole world in his hands. When the doctor calls and gives you bad news. When you unexpectedly get laid off at work, and if you're not singing along online yet, I need you to to pick it up. I can't hear you through Facebook just yet. But when you unexpectedly get that pink slip, he's got the whole world in his hands. When you've been faithfully teaching your kids to follow Jesus, and they still walk away, he's got the whole world in his hands when you're walking into a classroom tomorrow for the first time of the year and you're not sure who's going to be in your class or you're not sure how you feel about your teacher or who your teacher is just yet and you're not sure what the year's going to hold or, or what this new school is going to hold, he's got the whole world in his hands when everything seems to be going wrong. He's got the whole world in his hands when your friends gossip about you spread horrible rumors about you or abandon and desert you he's got the whole world in his hands john 13 when you're betrayed by those closest to you he's got the whole world in his hands jesus was in complete control of these events back then and he's in complete control of the ends, events that you and I are facing right now. Now, that doesn't mean everything is going to be roses. That doesn't mean we don't get that call from the doctor. That doesn't mean our kids don't wrestle and maybe walk from faith. That doesn't mean the first day of school is going to be perfect and you're going to have all your friends and the best teacher and all the things. But it does mean that the one that we follow is so much greater than our current circumstances. That ultimately we have nothing to fear because He has the whole world in His hands. John wraps up this scene around the table with His disciples with an absolutely powerful statement in June, uh, verse 30. So Judas left, going out into the night. One of the the key contrasts or dichotomies or illustrations that John keeps using over and over and over and over and over and over over is light and darkness. So sure, it's probably late and Judas is walking out into the physical darkness because the sun's gone down, but he's also writing about a spiritual darkness. Jesus has come and he's said and declared that he entered the world of darkness to bring light. He cried out in chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Judas went out into the night, he walked away from the light. So the question for us is will we walk in light? Let me keep reading in chapter 13. Again, picture this scene. It's, a, it's a, a, an intimate dinner table. Judas is now gone. So Jude, uh, Jesus is left with his own, as he calls them, the, the disciples who are left. And he, he steps into this farewell discourse, his last, most uh, intimate words and instructions to his disciples. Verse 31. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now, the Son of Man is glorified. God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, now I will also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. The new commandment I give you is that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Everything here is about to change for the disciples. And they're, they're reeling. They have uh, spent uh, every minute of every day for the past months and months and months with Jesus. They've, they've left their homes. They've put careers on hold. They maybe uh, left families at home to follow Jesus. They dropped everything when he said, follow me. And now Jesus says, actually, I'm leaving and you can't follow where I'm going imagine how their worlds would have been just absolutely rocked in that minute what do you mean i i I gave up everything i'm i'm here and now you're saying you're just going to carry on without us but jesus doesn't just leave them there in the confusion instead he he launches into uh, the longest continuous section of teaching we have of his from here right to the end of john 17. And in these first sort of intro verses to this last teaching, there's a few things we need to see. The first is that the cross is all about the glory of God, verse 31 and 32. In the New Testament, uh, 23 times the word glory is used and five of them happen in these two verses. It's it's a really significant piece for us. When the Bible talks about God's glory, he's really talking about at least a couple of things. First is, is the honor that God deserves the worship that he deserves, that he is due because of who he is. He is holy, and so he, he, he deserves creation uh, to worship him. But the second thing, it also talks about uh, his presence. When we read in the Old Testament, the glory of God was in the camp with Israel, we, we, we are reading about you know, the cloud that led them, or the bright light that, that came, or the, the, the glory of God that filled the temple or the tabernacle. It's his presence as well. And so, as one writer says, God's glory is the visible expression of his excellence. And when his excellence is seen, the people are prompted to give him the glory, the honor and worship that he is due. See, it's a both-and thing. God's, when we're talking about God's glory, it's, it's seeing him as he is, but it's also giving him the glory that he deserves. So Jesus is talking about both of these things in these verses, his, his presence and honor, and once again, we've said so many times, Jesus is tying himself to God, saying, I am God, I am God, I am God. And here again, he identifies himself as God by taking God's glory on himself. If I'm glorified, God is glorified. And if God is glorified, I am glorified. How does this connect uh, this passage with Jesus' impending crucifixion? How does uh, the just a couple hours later, the, the mockering, mockery, the arrest, the beating, the rejection, and the murder of the Son of God caused anyone to recognize the excellence of God. Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 31. The Son of Man is glorified, and so God is glorified. Pastor and commentator D.A. Carson helpfully answers that question. How does, how does Jesus being beaten and murdered show God's glory? He says this, the supreme moment of divine divine disclosure the greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross what he's saying is that there's no place that we can look to better understand who god is and what he's about than the cross there's no place that we can look and more clearly recognize that that god is worth all the glory and honor we can muster than the cross Matt Carter again continues he says the cross is the highest moment of god's revelation to mankind. When we look at the cross we learn more about god's excellence than in any other moment in history. In the death of jesus we see god's holiness and love, his righteousness and mercy, his justice and his grace, his sovereignty and humility, his wisdom and his patience. If we want to understand god, we have to study the cross. If we want to be transformed into the image of Jesus, we have to study the cross. Because a crossless Christianity is a godless Christianity. It's only through Jesus, only through his suffering and sacrifice can we know God. See, the cross is something we never move beyond. This isn't something that we learn in Sunday school, okay, let's we got the cross, let's get on to the other, the good stuff. It's not just a part of Christianity, it's the whole thing, the whole uh, worldview, the whole belief system is, is camped and cored on the cross. Now listen, every single one of us is gonna give our one and only lives to something. We're all chasing after something, we're all worshiping something. But only God and only Jesus can take the weight of that expectation, the weight of that worship. He's the only one that can carry us through this life and into the next. And so, for those times where our, our worship, when our, our, our journey towards Jesus seems to get a little stale, you know, I feel bad saying that, but it gets routine or a little dry maybe, it's time to stop and go back to the cross. If there's times when it seems hard to care about faith or God and we just get overwhelmed by all the other things going on and there's just too much and, and reading our Bibles or coming to service or whatever else just feels like another chore in our to-do list, we've got to go back to the cross. Because everything in the Christian life revolves around Christ and him crucified, as Paul wrote. The rest of the verses we just read look at the cross and how that's going to change everything for the disciples. First, Jesus again tells them, sorry guys, you can't come with me. Little children. It's this this beautiful phrase that John uses here for the first time, but then if we skip towards the end of our New Testaments and we read John's letters to the church, John takes that title that Jesus used here and and he has that same heart for the church. Little children, he says. Dear children, I love you. I, I wish you could, but this part I've got to do on my own, he says. And Jesus alludes to it too. Earlier in the gospel, he says to the Jews, to the religious people, where I'm going, you can't come with me. You're, you're stuck in your religion and so you're, you're, you're missing something. You, you're not ready to follow me yet. And I would guess at that time, the disciples said, ha, they can't come, but here we go. And now at this table, he looks at his closest friends and says, you can't come with me at this point. I'm, I'm going to the cross and I have to go alone. You can't do this with me because Jesus is the only one that can go to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. The second thing he, he launches them into is that uh, the disciples are now a part of a new community. Their relationship with Jesus is changing here. They, they have been with him for so long, but now he's going away. They, they can, can't be with him any longer. They'll still follow his teaching and his commands. Or they'll strive to, to, to live the life that Jesus modeled for them, but Jesus won't be physically present with them any longer. So when Jesus gives them this new commandment, this is a, another defining marker of this community, that they would love one another. Three times in these verses, Jesus says, love one another, love one another, love one another. And in this moment, the one another's are the disciples. He's not talking to the whole world. Yet. He's saying, listen, you guys, keep this together. You've got to have an, an inordinate amount of love for one another. There's going to be a community, he's saying. And the, the, the core uh, uniform that this community will wear is love for one another. He's not leaving the disciples alone, he's leaving them together. Because of their relationship with him, they now have a relationship with one another. I've said this, I think, a handful of times here, but many times over the course of ministry, if we look around the room, everyone take a quick look around the room. Uh, If you're online, look at who's chiming in in the chat. What are the odds that this group of people would be in the same place at the same time with the same goal if it wasn't for Jesus? Like nothing, right? He's saying, listen, you guys are going to be unified by faith in me, by your relationship with me. And because of that, you're going to have this relationship with one another. And he identifies all of them as little children. Eleven disciples from different backgrounds, different things. If one thing that we, we notice when we study the disciples is these guys would not have been hanging out together either if it wasn't for Jesus. Right? You've got the zealot. You've got the tax collector. You've got the fishermen. You've got all these guys that, again, uh, and again... Uh, Chosen is not the Bible, but it comes from the Bible, right? They try to base it on that. And they do a great job of saying, these disciples would not have been friends if it wasn't for Jesus. And they, they show the, 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 the strain on the relationships. And sometimes in this room, friends, there are strained relationships, but we are family because of Jesus. One example I said the other day, part of being the family of Christ is being inconvenienced for one another. Well, I got this great email from Ruthie the other day saying, listen if you ever need a sermon illustration, here's one for you. I was like, great Ruthie, we'll use it this time. So Ruthie, thank you. As as Vern mentioned, uh, Ruthie is a longtime member here, has lived in Ekshaw for 40 years, is that about right? 38 I think in the house she was in? Something like that and has just moved to Cochrane. And when Somebody moves from one place to another, uh, especially as they get a little bit older. Uh, it's a lot of work. And she says, you know, it's just mind-boggling the way people have cared for me at this time. They came and they, they visited me in the hospital. They helped out caring for my house when I was in the hospital. Uh, last weekend, it was just last weekend, she had a, a yard sale that she herself couldn't attend and so there were numerous people who were there serving her inconveniencing themselves for this sister in Christ and it was beautiful and she was blown away and she sent me this list of people that have helped and I counted up this it's 15 20 people long and she says I'm sure I've missed others and that's that's family thank you thank you thank you thank you Jesus calls this commandment new, but it's actually an early commandment. If we go to the Old Testament, we find in Leviticus, love your neighbor. So how is Jesus calling this new if he would have known it was there? But it's new in a couple of ways. It's new for us, and this is how it will work for us. First, it's new because Jesus is the source of this commandment. He doesn't say, okay, Go out and love people. He says, no, no, no. I've shown you how to do this. I've modeled it for you. You've been with me. You've seen how I care for people. Go love other people as I have loved you. His example is one of of sacrificial and selfless love. And his life and death on the cross empowers and encourages our love for one another, right? We love not because we're told to, but we love because he first loved us. This is new because Jesus is the source of the commandment. And it's new because he is defining here a new community. Shortly after Jesus has been resurrected and uh, spent some time with his disciples and then ascends back to the right hand of the Father, just like he promised he would, the church is, is established. The command is new because it's being specifically given to those who are following Jesus. This new community, this love is supposed to be the uniform of this new church that Jesus is launching. Just like if uh, a brown truck with yellow writing parks in front of your house and some guy hops out in a brown kind of golf shirt and brown shorts and walks out, you know exactly who's coming, right? We're not supposed to be uniformed by buildings or architecture or whatever else. But this community's uniform that it loves one another. It cares for one another. It's, we're, we're uniformed by how we treat others. So the disciples are looking to their future. They're reeling because Jesus said, you can't come with me. But he says, you're going to be a part of this new community. I'll empower that. And that's exactly what the last point here is, that the disciples will be empowered to follow Jesus. Peter, uh, impulsive as he so often is, brushes aside the whole new commandment thing, and says, hang on, Jesus, wait, go back. What do you mean you're going somewhere and we can't come? He's really hung up on Jesus leaving, which, again, is understandable. We give Peter a lot of flack, but I think we'd be sitting in that same chair. But again... Jesus is completely in control here. He knows that Peter doesn't humanly have all that it would take to follow Jesus all the way. Yet. Verse 36, Jesus promises, you you don't have it yet, but you will follow me later. And we see this. We see after the cross, Peter able to follow him. We see the boldness of the disciples characterized in Acts chapter 4 after the Holy Spirit has come. Tradition tells us that, that Peter went on and, and preached and preached and preached and then was crucified upside down following his Christ to the cross but didn't want to be right side up because that's too much like Jesus. I don't deserve that. That Peter upside down in the cross is not this Peter in John 13. Something's changed. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. In the same way, you and I, we cannot live up to this commandment on our own. But that same Holy Spirit that Jesus hints at here and promises in the coming verses is also given to us, promised to us. And with him, with Holy Spirit, living and active in and through us, we too can face anything this world has. Because Jesus has the whole world in his hands. Let me pray. And then Vern, will you come and lead us in a closing song? Jesus, thank you for these verses, for your word. This really big text. I thank you for the things that we've hopefully pulled out this morning. One that that I keep coming back to is that you know exactly what it means, what, exactly what it feels like to be betrayed and denied by those closest to you. You, you know the stuff we go through, the hurt, the pain, the, 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 the relationships. Thank you that we can look at these verses, which again might seem like things are out of control but we can see that in all of this, you are still in control. And I pray that, uh, again, that perhaps elementary Sunday school song that maybe we've heard for decades and decades and maybe a couple more decades after that would be one that would just bury itself deep in our hearts and we would carry it into our afternoons, into our tomorrows, into our weeks, and into our months that we love as you have loved us and you've got the whole world in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray.